If you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here, and uh, we are in a 31-week series, if you can believe that, called The Story, and today is week 18, and uh, we are moving toward, uh, the, toward the end, uh, but today we're looking at Daniel in exile, the book of Daniel, and we're looking at uh, Daniel chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 uh, to 22. We're not going to read all of those verses, but uh, I'm going to read the yellow, and uh, you're going to read the white. So let's stand together, and uh, let's see how we do this morning. Are we ready? It pleased Darius, Darius is the king, by the way, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict to en- and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being, except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They were not hurt me, because you found innocent in your sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we pause again give you thanks and praise for your love for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the work and the ministry of the Spirit that takes everything you've done in Jesus and makes it possible, applicable, and available in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and particularly 
as we go out from this place, from this facility, this property, and go out into our lives, our marriages, our homes, our families, where we work, where we go to school, where we get our recreation, and where we get our services. Lord, that we would, by the Holy Spirit, live out what it means to be the people of God, practically, tangibly, and in meaningful ways. That, Father, you might be pleased that Jesus would be exalted and the Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, Daniel's exile and Daniel's story can be summed up basically in six words. But before we get to that, there's this. The book of Daniel itself is one of the greatest in the entire Old Testament. Matter of fact, in the entire Bible. One of the greatest definitive statements on the resurrection of the dead is actually found in the book of Daniel. And one of the things that I love about the the book of Daniel is the way in which it speaks. For example, it talks about God being the revealer of secrets. And one of the things that I like about Daniel is very unique. We don't find it anywhere else in the Bible that Daniel refers to angels as the watchers. And I just, that really appeals to me. The King James kind of, uh, rather the uh, NIV says messengers, but that's kind of flat and boring. But the idea of it being, being watchers, that angels are watchers. Isn't that great? But the other thing that Daniel's known for is it's dealing with, and one of the key books actually, one of the important books, on the end of time. Now, many people read the book of Daniel for that very reason. Uh, They want to know about the future, and I think that that is legitimate. There's something good about that and something biblical about, but our purpose today is not to find out the future or to figure out the future, but our purpose today is to learn how to live for Christ in the present. Now, I admit, I admit that speculation about the future is sometimes much more exciting than practicality in the present. But that's our focus today. Our focus is how Daniel fits into God's upper story, his redemptive history, the grand narrative, the the redemptive history of the human race. Now our text tells us that Daniel the person is one of the brighter lights of his generation and of his time. Uh, Daniel saw things and heard things and experienced things and encountered things and understood things that most ordinary people did not and do not. But Daniel was a man or a person out of place. He is one of many among the Jews who have been relocated, have been exiled from Judah to Babylon. Now, Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Daniel is not the only one that is relocated and exiled from Judah to Babylon. There is also with him Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, of course, we know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are actually referred to as the three Hebrew children. 
And rightly so, because that's exactly what they were when they went into Babylon, children. Daniel was 14 years old when he was taken from his home in Judah and brought into the nation of Babylon. And not only the four of them, but there were hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people from Judah that were relocated from their Jewish homes and brought to the nation of Babylon. Daniel, like those hundreds and those thousands, had been taken away and from everything that was familiar to them, everything that was comfortable, and taken to somewhere where everything was absolutely foreign. Everything had changed. Everything was different. The language is different. The culture is different. The food is different. The customs are different. And the people are different. But in all of that, Daniel not only survived, but he thrived. He prospered. He rose to prominence and influence that were unusual and that were unanticipated. And in all of that change and in all of that transition, he experienced that he experienced and that he encountered, he did it without losing his soul and without losing his faith. And if Daniel teaches us anything, Daniel teaches us this. It is possible to be faithful to God and to our faith in the best and worst of times and situations. It is possible to be faithful to God and to do so in the best and worst of situations and times. Daniel is summed up in six words. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says, And Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Those are the six words that define Daniel. And these are powerful, powerful words. But that brings us then to our text and to a testimony, or rather a title or a testimony. The years pass, and Daniel and the three rise to prominence and power in the Babylonian and then in the Medo-Persian empires. When we catch up to Daniel in chapter 6, more than 70 years has passed. And Daniel is between 80 and 90 years of age. He is not a young man, and the... Babylonians have been conquered by the Medo-Persians. And Darius is now king instead of Belshazzar, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And we have in our text palace intrigue and espionage and personal envy and political jealousy. But listen to Daniel's testimony from the mouths of the enemy. We read these words just a moment ago from verses 4 and verses 5. And the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these said... 
These men said, we will never find any basis for charge against the man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, is that not amazing? The testimony of Daniel out of the mouths of his enemies. And Daniel managed to maintain his witness and his testimony and his personal integrity in the midst of affluence and influence. He remained unspoiled. In adversity and perversity, he remained humble. In, in great prominence, he remained pure. And under pressure, he persevered. What a testimony. What a witness. But Daniel's not the only one. We have seen this throughout the Bible a number of years ago, and I don't know why I stumbled upon this a couple of weeks ago. A number of years ago, I heard a black preacher talk about this, and he said this. He said, Pharaoh had the title, but Moses had the testimony. Goliath had the title, but David had the testimony. Haman had the title, but Esther had the testimony. Jezebel had the title, but Elijah had the testimony. Pilate had the title, but Jesus had the testimony. Nebuchadnezzar had the title, but it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that had the testimony. Darius had the title, but Daniel had the testimony. And the church and the world may have the titles, but the church of Jesus Christ has the testimony. But there's also this. Is it not true that often in conflict and in difficulty, it's there that our testimony and our witness and our personal integrity becomes tested? When there's strife in our life, who we really are begins to come through. When there's strife in our lives, what we're really about and what we're made of begins to rise to the surface. And it may sound like a contradiction, but sometimes unfavorable circumstances are the most favorable for developing Christ's character in us. This has been true for Israel's, Jacob's family nation from the very beginning. I mean, has any people in the world been more harassed than the people of Israel, the Jews? Matter of fact, they have been so harassed in history that we actually have a word for it. It's called anti-Semitism. And it's raising its ugly head again in our world, if we can ever believe that. I was listening or watching or reading, rather not none of those, reading about a Holocaust survivor down in the Bracebridge, Gravenhurst area, who was talking to a school and the CBC interviewed her and she said, it scares me that anti-Semitism is rising again. And Israel's nation family, the Jewish people, they're pushed down again and again and again. But they rise up over and over and over. And is this not also the case 
with the Christian church? That during persecution, the church has always flourished? It was Tertullian, the church father, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? And he was correct. And history proves it. The Christian church always flourished and has been made stronger when it's gone through its most difficult times of persecution. That in the church, God has placed this ability, this rallying factor, this reality of the ability to rise to the challenge. And the church always comes back. But is it not also true of individuals as well? Under pressure that God's people have a tremendous capacity to emerge and even do so with stronger faith and a greater commitment to Christ. But we understand that the ability to do that is not in ourselves. It is in, rooted in Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. And that power is not in Daniel either. The power in his life is rooted in God's word and God's faithfulness and ultimately in God himself. Listen to what they said. We will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now what's interesting in our story is what does Daniel do when he hears about this scheme? Exactly what he did before. It tells us in verse 10 that he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had always done before. Now Daniel could have stopped praying for a month. Could have done that. He could have prayed privately so that nobody could hear him. And he could have done it at night so nobody could see him. I mean, God would have understood, right? I mean, any of that would make sense to God. I mean, after all, certainly God would not want Daniel to be hurt or experience any discomfort or pain. Daniel could have buckled under the pressure. He could have compromised in order not to put himself in a bad spot. I mean, we would understand, right? It's easy to rationalize it. Daniel could have done any of this and more of this and all of that, but he didn't. And Daniel's enemies knew exactly where to find him. As wise and as gifted as Daniel was, he was not so wise and gifted that he could not and he would not trust God. And because of that, Daniel opened his window toward heaven. And he literally won kings for the Lord. We'll be told a little bit later in chapter 6 that because of what Daniel has done, Darius the king, the Medo-Persian king, will actually come to faith in Christ. Or faith in God. 
And following that, his successor, Cyrus, will also come to faith in, faith in God or faith in Christ. And actually Cyrus, which we'll look at next week, he'll be the one that will allow God's people to go back home. And we read about that in Ezra chapter 1. So that's the upper story. That's God's upper story. God's upper story coming to realization. This is God bringing about the redemptive narrative of salvation so we can get to Jesus. That's the upper story. Well, what about our lower story? Yours and mine. Our story, our journey. That brings us to what Daniel is most famous for, and that is the lion's den and the mouths of the lions. Now, to make a long story short, we read it in the text. <clears throat> the, degree, the decree is issued. Daniel has found out that he's broke the law, and his punishment is to head for the lion's den, and God keeps the, mouth, keeps the lions from devouring him. He shuts the mouths of the lions. Now, isn't that a great story? I remember this story from when I was a kid in Sunday school. Daniel is famous for the lion's den. I mean, is it not the most fabulous story? But I have this nagging question. I have this question that has been rolling around in my head. It's a simple question. It's this. Does God always shut the mouths of lions in our lives? I mean, we know, right? That nothing ever bad happens to God's people. Everybody is healed. And everybody is delivered. And our prayers get answered exactly as we desire. We know that's not true. What happens when God does not close the mouth of the lions? What happens when it does not go the way that we hoped and prayed and desired? And I begin to realize that there's two points in this story. The upper story of God delivering Daniel is about his grand narrative, redemptive history. But for us in the lower story, our lower story, your story, my story, our story is that rescue is not the point of the story. I think the point of the story for us is trust in and faithfulness to God. Even when God does not shut the lion's mouths. God didn't shut the lion's mouths when our early brothers and sisters, the first Christians, were brought into the arena by the Romans and the lions were set free and they tore them apart, literally. Literally. 
and they died for their faith, God didn't shut the mouths of the lions. And then there's a troublesome statement in verse 22 for me. It's this. When Daniel responds to Darius coming down after a sleepless night, he says to Darius the king, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me. Because, because I am innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. So, let's follow this along for a moment. When God does not shut the lion's mouth in my life, or God does not shut the lion's mouth in your life, Does that mean that you are not innocent? Does that mean that you've done wrong? No. No. Absolutely not. The one story that we haven't talked about much, we alluded to it, but we haven't talked about it, is the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and how that Nebuchadnezzar in his narcissistic ego sets up a huge statue of himself and declares that everybody in the kingdom is going to bow down to this statue. And in his self-aggrandizement, he says that if anybody does not do this, then they shall be put into a furnace and will be burned alive. The alternative is pretty bleak. But of course, we know the story, if you know anything about the story, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are friends of Daniel, they won't bow down. And so they end up being thrown in the furnace. But listen to what they say to King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to their testimony. They said, If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from it, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he does not, even if he does not answer my prayer the way I want, even if I am not delivered and I'm not healed, will I trust God? Life or death? Will we trust God? Life or death? Will you? Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Another version says, yet though he slay me, I will trust in him. You see, we often focus on God rescuing us, and God focuses on our trust and faithfulness. I think it is fair to say that 
God doesn't deliver us from, but he delivers us through. The most familiar text in the entire Bible. Even though I walk through the deepest valley, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Through. Not around, not over, not under. Through. The Bible gives me no guarantee that I will be immune from pain or trials. Matter of fact, sometimes the very opposite is true, that because we are Christians, we'll suffer more because we are Christians than if we were not Christians. And there are 250 million of our brothers and sisters in the world that will testify to that and tell you that every day they suffer for their faith. And around the globe this morning and throughout this day early in the morning, our brothers and sisters have met secretly and some privately for fear of death, imprisonment, torture, ridicule. What, 250 million of us. It's a lot of people. It's a quarter of a billion people. But that was was the attitude of Daniel. No matter what happens, I will trust and be faithful. And God's response <clears throat> is this. Do you know what this is? Do you know what that is? It's a punching bag. I had one of these when I was a kid. And in the bottom, there's some, well, in mine, there was sand. And every time you punch it, it'll go down and it comes back up. And it doesn't matter how fast you do it, how hard you do it, or how many times you do it, that thing just keeps coming back and back and back. And it's frustrating. Because you want to hit it and put it down for good, but it keeps coming back. And life is exactly the same. You see, let me tell you something. Here's God's response. God's response to us is this. Resurrection. In the life to come, it'll be resurrection. But in this present life, resurrection looks more like resiliency and buoyancy and irrepressibility. Life punches you and you come back. And life punches us and we come back and life punches me and I come back and we keep coming back and we keep coming back. Why? Because God has put within us the ability by the Spirit to rally, to respond. Daniel 6, verse 16 in the message says this. The king said to Daniel, Your God, to whom you are so loyal, is going to get you out of this. And my paraphrase is, one way or another. So how about us? How about you? How about me? How will I respond when the mouths of the lions are not shut? How will we respond when our prayer is not answered the way that we anticipated or hoped or even desired? How will you respond? 
Will I trust and be faithful? Will you trust and be faithful even if you do not, Lord? Will I be faithful and will I trust? How about you? How will we respond? I want you to just close your eyes all over the room. And those of you that are watching online, if you want to, do the same. Just for a private moment. And if you're in your room by yourself or you're alone, don't worry about it. Just be internal for a moment. There are many of us in this room that have experienced exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced heartache and pain and hurt. Unfair. When somebody dies too young, when somebody who has cancer and they're just a child. And we know this world and we know that as Christians these things happen to us. And there are disappointments and there's unfairness in our world. And God does not close the mouth of the lions. How will we respond? Some of us may still be angry with God. Some of us, sadly, might have become embittered. You come to church, but you resent it. Because God didn't shut the lion's mouth. And some of us, we are going to experience disappointment, heartache, pain, loss. And God is not going to shut the mouths of the lions. And in that moment in the future, how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond and raise your fist to God and wave it in his face? Or are we going to say, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him? I will trust and be faithful. I'm going to ask you musicians to come. Just keep your eyes closed for a moment. Just think about that in your life. You, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to ask you musicians to come. And Pastor Scott, the song that I want is Firm Foundation. With your eyes closed. How have you responded in the past? How have you responded today? And how will you respond tomorrow? I want you to think about that. I want to pray for you. Pray for us. Father, I know today that there is a lot of thought taking place in, the, in our minds. Lord, there is tenderness in people's hearts today when we talk about this. And there's disappointment and there's loss and there's pain and there's questions. And some of us feel unfairly treated. It is true. 
But what you're asking of us today is how are we going to respond? And Lord, I believe that one of the things you're asking us to do is to ask you to help us. That if there is bitterness and unforgiveness and anger toward you, that we'll take our teeth out of it today and we'll let it go. And Father, I don't know what the future holds, but I pray for the fortification of our minds and our spirits and our souls. In Jesus' name. But Lord, if the six words that sum up Daniel is, he resolved in his heart to not defile himself. What is my resolution today? What is our resolution? Now, I'm going to ask everybody to keep their eyes closed and I'm going to ask you to do something incredibly courageous, gutsy, nerve it's going to take. If you've got, if you feel that you've been unfairly treated by God, you got disappointment, maybe unforgiveness, bitterness, no one's going to ask you what it is, but I'm going to ask you today to take your teeth out of it. And by taking your teeth out of it, I'm going to ask you to just stand to your feet. Whoever you might be. It takes a lot of courage what I'm asking you. But we're a family. And we're here to find healing and help and wholeness and wellness. All over the room. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. You're in the Father's house. And he's here to forgive us and to help us. So if that's you today, would you just stand to your feet? Father, for those that are standing today here in the room and those that are standing online, may your grace, may this be the beginning of healing, of forgiveness, of the root of bitterness being taken out and Lord, it being replaced with trust and faith and hope that in the end you love us. And that one day, Lord, we know that death will never be the final word. Resurrection is the final word. But in the, this life, Resurrection is seen as buoyancy, as resiliency, as irrepressibility. The ability to come back, the ability to bounce back. And I ask, Father, that those that are standing today in this room that have the courage to do that, that this would be the beginning of healing in the name of Jesus.